religion and rituals will not save you. That comes to our attention through a study of Romans today on Abounding Grace. This is amazing grace. Back in the first century, the Jew was given a tremendous privilege, but as it's been well said, with privilege comes responsibility. There's also great risk, as we'll hear about today on Abounding Grace. As we turn to the book of Romans, we'll learn that it's foolish to trust in the law to save. The privileged Jew didn't live up to their privilege and consequently brought reproach on God's name. It's a grave error you definitely want to avoid. Here's Pastor Ed Taylor in Romans 2, verses 17 through 29. It's by faith that security comes. False security. You know what a false security looks like? One of my responsibilities as the father of the home, you got to say it that way, the father of the home, is to go through before I go to bed and check the doors and the windows just to make sure everything's locked up because, you know, the kids come in and out and the doors get unlocked and the garage stays open sometimes. And my responsibility is to be the man and to go through and check all of the doors and all the like. For the most part, if I'm not too tired, I do a pretty good job of that. And that way, when we all go to bed and we all put our head down on the pillow, we have this sense of security that dad has locked the house up just fine. Oh, that's great. But I'll tell you, sometimes I skip a door or two. Because I think, hey, we didn't go out that door today. I didn't use that door today. We only went out this door. And after all, I'm really tired. Nobody used that door. So I'll just check the doors that we did use. I'll go up and I'll go to bed. And I've got that sense of security to only wake up in the morning and find out that the front door was unlocked. <laughs> oh, no, no, not only was it unlocked, but it was open. It's like, what happened here? I was all asleep. Oh, come on in, everybody. The door is open. <laughs> A false sense of security. As if everything's just right. All the doors and the windows of my life are okay. They're all locked up. They're all sealed. They're all what they need to be only to come to the end of your life and find out that you missed the most important door of your life. Jesus would say in John chapter 10 that I am the door. That Jesus is the very door, the very way, the very life by which a person receives security. Oh, not a false sense of security. And I think if you would talk to people today, the most popular thought that gives a false sense of security is that if I'm good, I'm okay with God. If I'm good, if I'm good, what a standard good is. Good. I'm a good person. And good becomes the standard. I help people. I give to good causes. Safeway, you go shopping, right? You got your milk and your cheese and your eggs and your meat and your cereal. And there you are at the checkout and you're going through... Man, that was expensive. I didn't know that cost so much. And right at the end, they say, would you like to give a dollar to this good charity? And you're like, yeah, yeah, I'll give a, I feel good. And so you leave Safeway thinking, you know, I'm a good person. I just gave to charity. I mean, here I am. I gave him, he asked for a dollar. I gave him two. That's how good I am. 
And you go out into your car and you're loading your one bag, your two bag, and you notice there's a gal right down there, three cars down, and she's fumbling with her groceries. Her kids are running around. It's unbelievable. You go, I'm good. I'm good today. I'm good. I'm going to go help her. So you go and you help her with the groceries. You throw her kids in the car and you help her get out of there. <laughs> you get into your car, you turn the key on, and you're like, I'm good. I mean, I'm really good today. And then there you're ready to get out, and 10 cars want to get out before you, but you're thinking, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Just go, all of you 10 cars. I'm a good person today. Look at me. Look how good I am. You wait for three lights, and you wait for all the cars, and you go home with this false sense that you're good. And then you might falsely conclude that that goodness is what God is looking for in your life. And when he looks down at you, that his main concern is, I wish she would be more good I really wish he would be a better person. And that's not God's heart at all. When God looks down upon us, he says, oh, how I long to commune with him. How we would love for him and her to love me like I love them. How I would just love to see them surrender their life and not worry about being so good in life, but worry about being my son and my daughter living for me good. I mean, the progress is not only big, is good the standard, but then we get to the place where we say, well, I do good, so I must be okay. I mean, I do good. It's not just a safe way. You know, I'm a good person all the time. I go to church. I'm good. I'm here, aren't I? I bought a Bible. I took that Bible. I've even begun to read that Bible. I'm good. I do good. I pray. I love God. See, God? See, see, I am good. See, I really try to do good. You see, God, here I am. I'm the good person. But flip over to Romans chapter 3 just for a second as Paul shatters that thought. Remember chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 toward the middle is bringing us down a path that none of us are as good as we need to be in order to enter into heaven. And God isn't saying stop being good. What he's saying is stop relying upon it in your relationship with him. And it says, and we're just going to kind of do this interactively, I'd like you to emphasize the word none as we come across it, okay? So as I'm reading, all of us are going to read the word none together, just in case you want to know what the special word is. It's none, okay? Listen, verse 10, chapter 3. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. You get the picture yet? Verse 12, they have all gone out of the way. They have all together become unprofitable. There is who does what? Good. Wait a minute. I'm a good person. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, Paul. Wait, hey, 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 hey. You're getting a little too close here. I mean, I do good. I mean, doesn't Safeway account for something? I mean, come on. I do good. I love my neighbor. I help them. Isn't that enough? If that is what you're trusting in and relying upon to have a right standing with God, it isn't enough. No, you see, if you want to go that way, then you have to go that way perfectly. See, if you want to be saved because you're a moral person, then you have to be morally perfect. And if you want to be saved because you're religious, then you have to be religiously perfect. And if you want to be saved because you're good, then you have to be perfectly good. And if it's rituals that keep you connected to God, then you have to keep those rituals perfectly. And by the time we come to the middle of chapter 3, we learn, hey, there's none None, none, none that are perfect. Well, verse 17, chapter 2. The Holy Spirit writing through Paul speaks to the religious person. 
He wants you to understand if, if you're religious today and you hold on to rituals in order to be right with God, then the Holy Spirit wants us to know that religion and rituals will not save you. Religion and rituals will not save you. Indeed, verse 17, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Now, Paul understood that part of his audience, a big part of his audience that would be reading this letter would be religious people. In particular, in context during the time would be the Jewish man, the Jewish woman. And in that place, he knew that Predominantly, most of the Jews were relying on their religion to be right with God. And that's how he starts. There's actually seven things, if you want to jot them down, that these Jews were holding on to in their standing with God. That they would be the chosen people, and the attitude with the chosen people would, why would I need Jesus if I'm chosen? Well, notice the things that they were resting upon. And that's the key word in verse 17. They were resting on these things. This was where they just put themselves down. Number one, they were resting on being called a Jew. They were called a Jew. The word Jew literally means praise to Jehovah. So you can keep that in mind every time it comes up in the scriptures. It literally means to be a praise unto God or a praise unto Jehovah. And so proud of their names, they would use Jew as a surname because they wanted everyone to know that they were a praise unto Jehovah by name. The second thing that they rested upon was the law. Notice in verse 17, they believed that they were okay because they fought, not just because they followed the law, because they didn't follow the law. They believed they were okay because they had the law. They just had it. God gave it to them. They were the people that God instituted his word through, and they began to rest upon it. The third thing we notice in verse 17 is that they made their boast in God. They wanted people to know that they were God's people, and they boasted about it. The problem was is their boasting wasn't good because they began to think that they were more superior than anyone that wasn't with them. And there became a big division. You were either a Jew or you were not. And if you were not, you were in big trouble. And they boasted in their relationship with God. Number four, in verse 18, they knew God's will. They boasted in that. They were encouraged by that. They were self-confident. And the more they learned God's law, the more they became self-confident. They weren't the type of people to surrender in humility, but to move forward in pride. Number five in verse 18, they approved the things that were excellent. They actually went around telling people what was right and what was wrong. And that's the place that they were. They were good judges in their minds. Number six, verse 18, they were instructed by the law. So they learned. They were masters of taking it in and taking it in and taking it in and taking good notes. They knew the law. And then finally in verse 19 and 20, they were confident spiritual teachers in their own mind, it says. They were confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, that you guys are lights to those who are in darkness, an instructor of foolish and a teacher of babes. So they had great confidence. And it's one thing to say, hey, why are you doing that? So we have the Jew up here now that Paul has said and say, okay, here you are, everybody. Look, look at what they are doing. Look at where their confidence is. Look at the seven things that they're trusting in. But let's bring it home for a second for us here today, okay? Because it's one thing to have a group of people up here as an example, but then let's examine our own lives. Here we are, believers in Jesus Christ that love his word. I mean, we do. 
We agree with the psalmist, Psalm 119, verse 97, where he says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And yet, can we find ourselves in the same place where we are boasting in things and not really living out God's will in our lives? Is it possible that we are boasting and resting in the fact that we are called Christians and that we know the truth and that we're in a church that teaches God's word and we're in a church that encourages good works but never really going out and doing them ourselves? Oh, it's one thing to see them, but then it's another thing to ask the question, what about us? What about us? It's so easy to take this word and the more you learn it, the more you learn it, the more you learn it, it's being learned for someone else instead of being practiced for ourselves. It's so easy to say, well, here's the word, here's the word, the Bible, this precious book, a tool that God uses to draw a person to himself for salvation and hope, but can also become a tool where, well, man uses it to condemn and destroy people's lives. If you weren't here last week, you absolutely have to get the study from last week. Because we pause a little bit from Romans to look at God's grace and the picture of God's grace of what it looks like when you and I as Christians are faced in dealing with someone else that has fallen into sin. It's absolutely essential. You can get the CD or you can just download it right off the web and listen to it and allow its truths to sink into your heart. Because what we looked at was the entirety of how easy it would be for us to come with the wrong hearts and with the wrong attitudes and absolutely crush someone who has fallen instead of helping them get back up. And we ask the question, what kind of person do you want to be? A very religious, outwardly, an, outward, an outwardly religious person that is very condemning or a person that has God touching our hearts and we're there to help people. And so get that study. We need to be careful to not look down on people because of our relationship with Jesus. We need to be careful that our hearts break over the sin of others. We need to be careful that we don't come into the place like we hear with the Jews that to the point where we're so confident in the things of God that we've left God altogether. That's exactly what happened to the church that we know that was in Ephesus. In Ephesians, in the six chapters of Ephesians, Paul talks about all the wonderful things that were given to this church, all the wonderful spiritual blessings, all the wonderful blessings of God in grace and in mercy. And by the time we come to Revelation, would you turn there with me? Flip over to Revelation. Just a few years later, after Paul wrote his letters in chapter 2, Jesus shows up on the scene to say, listen, guys, I want you to hear this from my heart. Revelation chapter 2, all the way at the end, at the last book of the Bible. And believe me, gang, the more you turn, the more you look, you will find the books of the Bible. So just continue on. If you have to go to the table of contents, go for it. Because eventually, you won't have to. You'll know the books of the Bible. But Revelation's way at the end, so you know that. Last book of the Bible, chapter 2, look at verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and that you've tested those who say they're apostles and are not, and have, have found them liars. And you've persevered, and have patience, and you've labored for my namesake, and have not become weary. Just stop there for a second. Now, if you're reading a letter from Jesus, and he's writing these things to you, wouldn't you be a little encouraged by now? You're like, yeah, Lord, I serve you, I persevere for you, I stand up for what is right for you, I love you, and then that word, nevertheless... They're like, oh, no, Lord, could it be another word? But no. He says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. He doesn't say you've left your first work. He doesn't say you've left your first action. 
He doesn't say you've left the time when you gave your life to the Lord on the, on the all first altar call. He says, here's the thing I have. You've left your love for me. You're doing all these things and you don't even love me. You're not even motivated by love. And here's the antidote if that's you today. If that's you today and you are in that place where you have an outward show of being religious, but your acts, well, you just haven't been the man that God's wanted you to be. You haven't been the woman that God's desired you to be. You, you, you haven't really lived a life of love. You've loved yourself more than you've loved God. Verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the first works. Or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You see, God is patient with you. He's abundantly patient with you. But there's coming a point in time where the patience of God will end. In Genesis, we learn that God, he doesn't want to strive with man any longer. And he comes and he brings judgment. And there are consequences, Christians, for your sin. Don't, don't think for a second that, that when you sin, there isn't going to be a consequence to face. There is. Oh, it's great to know Jesus and it's wonderful to receive his forgiveness, but consequences come to the righteous and the unrighteous alike. And it's wonderful to know that you're right with the Lord, but you can't, and I can't trust in our religion. My religion? My goodness? Oh, no, back in Romans. I mean, they had all these things. They were religious. They were right where they needed to be. But look at verse 21 now. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Just pause there for a second, teachers. Teachers, those of you that teach, teaching in the schools, teaching at work. Maybe you're a business owner and you give direction. Maybe you're a Bible teacher. Maybe you're a home fellowship leader. Maybe you're a Sunday school teacher. Listen to the question. You, therefore, who teach another, do you teach yourself? Moms, dads, do you teach yourself? Are you living out the very things that you're teaching your kids? Are you living out the things, boss, that you're teaching your employees? Or is it just one of those things, you know, it's good for you, but it doesn't apply to me? Is that going to work very long? I don't think so. Anybody ever work for a boss like that? Who just felt that once they got to the title or to the position, they didn't need to learn anything anymore? That now they're the teacher. Ever, anybody work for someone like that? Yes or no? Yes. Frustrating, right? Yes. It's a very frustrating thing. It's a frustrating thing for you and I to get to the place where we think, you know what, Lord? I don't have anything more to learn. I got it. I'm right where I need to be. You who teach, don't you teach yourself? Thursday night Bible study, we had a glorious time just studying the Word of God. And a brother came up and said, oh, Pastor Ed, that was for me. That was for me. And now I'm going to do some things. I'm going to make some decisions because some of the things that you shared tonight, that was right for me. You must have been watching me and looking in on me. And I'd say, you know what? Before it was for you, it was for me. Because that's how it works. It would be very easy to come up with notes that someone else had written. You know, you know do you know that you can download sermons on the Internet? I got this one on. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Gosh, don't get up and leave. I'm just joking. You can download sermons. You can buy them on CD. They give you kits that you can do as a pastor. Here, here's all the books for the church, and here are the messages to teach. I'll tell you what. I almost hear Paul saying, you teachers, aren't you learning yourself? You can't teach someone else's message. It has to be yours. It has to come through your life. And I'll tell you, a lot of times these messages that are shared here go right through me first. I wrestle with the same things you're wrestling with right now, but I've done it before because I've been wrestling with it all week. 
And I'm just like, oh, Lord, I mean, can we skip this? Can we skip it? Can we move on? I know we're verse by verse, could we, but we can, be, can we be verse by verse, but not this verse, but that verse? You know, can we do that? And God says, no, 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 that's not, that's not my will for your life. That's not my will for that church. So, you know, you obey me, Ed. I say, yes, Father, that's true. Don't you ever come across passages? He's like, I don't know about that one. You know, I'm... I, Oh, and then and then you kind of you have to take your glasses off because you like see your name there and you're like what? <laughs> so I'm not sure, man. Where'd my name come up in there? The Holy Spirit. That's where, because the Holy Spirit He loves you. He wants to draw in you, teachers. Listen, you can't teach something that you yourself haven't been taught. You can't just pull a sermon off the internet and think it's going to have any power or any effectiveness in your life. Oh, the, God does not send out his word and have it return void. So whenever you read God's word, it's going to be powerful. But I'll tell you what, if you really want to be effective, whether you're a boss or a supervisor or you're a teacher in a public school, a private school, you're a teacher here in Bible study here, Sunday school, whenever place where you're in a place of instruction, listen to the question, don't you teach yourself? Don't you teach yourself? Aren't you learning for yourself first? Well, he says, you who preach that a man should not steal, verse 21, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through the breaking of the law? For the name of God is blasphemed. And that's the sad thing. Through our behavior at times, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. And I have written next to this in my Bible, my little notes, be ever so careful so that my God is not blaspheme. It makes sense, doesn't it? That from the first few verses that we've read, that now verse 21 through 24, we have bad behavior. Because what you believe, if you believe wrongly, then you're going to behave wrongly. If you have a wrong concept of who God is, then you're going to behave that way. Wrong beliefs lead to bad behavior, especially spiritually. You're listening to a study in Romans from Pastor Ed Taylor on Abounding Grace. You can hear it again right now online at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Pastor Ed, we learned from Romans today that religion and rituals will not save us. Why do you think it's so hard for people to believe that? Well, Larry, you know, we're creatures of habit, and we like to go through life habitually and ritually, and not necessarily in a bad way. You know, sometimes those words can have negative connotations, but not necessarily. We like routine. That, that's why, maybe putting it a different way, change is really hard for people. Uh, but the only thing that, that we can count on when it comes to change is change. But we often revert back to that which is comfortable, that which is easy or easier, and when it comes to our relationship with God, it's no different. And add to that so many that were raised in a religious home, not necessarily a godly home, but a religious home. I, I was raised until about the sixth or seventh grade, more, probably a little younger than that, in a religious home. Church to us or to my parents was a religious activity, and it added morals to our home. So my home was a, a, a pretty high moral home, but it wasn't necessarily a godly worshiping home. Uh, we weren't in the Bible. We didn't read the Bible together. We didn't pray together. We There were many things that you would see in our home growing up as a kid that my parents, we would do things religiously and ritually, and that's how my parents were raised, and that's how they chose to raise their home uh, until later in life when they were born again. Uh, and so I think, you know, combined with the way we were raised and combined with our natural tendency for ritual and routine, 
It is normal. So that now when there's freedom attached and just the beautiful, glorious grace of God, it's not as hard as people might think. They just, if they would simply choose to trust God with their life, they would enjoy the freedom and the grace of God that's theirs. Thanks for sharing that, my friend. This month, we picked out a book we think you'll enjoy. It would even make for a great gift or stocking stuffer. It's The Case for Christmas by Lee Strobel. Sort of like a journalist, Lee Strobel investigates the identity of the child in the manger, focusing on the hows and whys of Christmas. It'll serve to reaffirm your faith and help seekers pursue solid answers about the first coming of Christ. We'll send it your way when you support Abounding Grace with a gift of $25 or more. Please remember this radio ministry is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you. And we'd appreciate it if you'd remember us in your year-end giving to the Lord. To request the case for Christmas, please call toll-free at 877-30-GRACE. And as I mentioned a moment ago, you can make a secure donation to the ministry online at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Glad you've taken time out for our study in Romans. We'll pick up where we left off next time we get together on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado, here in Aurora.